messy mess. I think what most people will say is, we don't care what it is, we just want it, and we want it now. The political fight over the future crossing and why the bridge versus tunnel debate isn't over yet. Also tonight, a BC fugitive fights extradition. The need to see evidence against the accused is the trump card. How an alleged gangster is buying time to stay in Puerto Rico. Canada! And a soccer friendly, some say, is anything but. They already politicized this game. It was not us. Calls to cancel the upcoming Canada-Iran match at BC Place and what the Prime Minister has to say about it. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight and we'll have those stories for you in just a moment. But we begin with breaking news of a fast growing grass fire that has forced the closure of Highway 1 between Ashcroft and Kamloops. The fire is located alongside the highway about 16 kilometers northeast of Ashcroft near Juniper Beach Provincial Park. According to the BC Wildfire Service, the fire has already grown to about five hectares and a crew of 10 firefighters has been dispatched to the scene. The fire is being described as highly visible and you can see it there very visible from the road. RCMP are on scene controlling traffic. Well, the future of the Massey Crossing has been a hot button issue for years and it appears the issue isn't settled yet. From bridge to tunnel, and if Kevin Falcon has his way and gets elected, it'll be back to the bridge once again. As Richard Zussman reports, that plan would push the project back even further. It has long been a bottleneck for drivers. Now the Massey Tunnel replacement is a bottleneck for politicians. The people that have made them wait are the NDP government that cancelled the bridge when almost $100 million of work had already been done. BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon vowing, if elected as Premier in 2024, to scrap the government's planned eight-lane new tunnel and bring back the 10-lane bridge the Liberals approved and the NDP cancelled. What I will do is dust off the plans for the bridge that are already there. All the work has been done. The eight-lane tunnel would be $4.15 billion. The bridge would take as long as nine years, but that window would only start after the 2024 election. The tunnel would be open by 2030. The bridge project did have environmental approval, while the tunnel does not yet. He can go make his argument to the people of Surrey and Delta and Richmond, but we've listened to those municipalities, and again, who unanimously supported the tunnel approach. But due to updated environmental rules, the Liberals' bridge would have to go through the process again. It is just an incredible nightmare. You are in the middle of this gigantic concrete structure. Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody showing what the bridge project would look like. And going back to it would be going against what the people of Richmond and Delta want. I just don't think it's an idea that uh, should go forward to go back in time back to the future uh, to a 10-lane bridge, which really uh, very few want. If I listened to the mayors, there would be no Canada Line today. There would be no Portman Bridge. There would be no South Fraser Perimeter Road and much of the other infrastructure that I built back when I was in government. A political pileup while commuters in the region continue to be stuck on the highway. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. 
All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry now with more because the Massey project wasn't the only topic that led to fiery mm -hmm. debate today, Keith. Yes, the plan to replace the Royal B BC Museum with a new near $1 billion replacement is uh, come out of nowhere. What a mess it's become for the NDP government. This is the source, this, uh, the source of acrimony in the BC legislature, the likes of which we haven't seen before. A big part of this, from the NDP's point of view, is what's called shared history with First Nations, bringing First Nations in as sort of a partner in this museum in terms of themes and exhibits and such. But the t story took a bit of a twist today. Adam Olson, the Green Party MLA for Saanich North of the Islands, is a member of First Nations. He's offended by the entire idea. He doesn't like it. He says it basically warehouses Indigenous culture. And I think that caught the NDP by surprise today. Here's Adam Olson and Tourism Minister Melanie Mark. It has been identified as a terrible place for Indigenous people to work. It cannot be fixed by a bigger, brighter, shinier museum built with mass timber and wrapped in a Lekwungen-inspired veneer. A new shrine to house the systemic rot is not the solution. For the record, with all due respect, I'm Niska Gitsan Cree in Ojibwe, my daughter's Haida. We don't all agree. We don't all think the same. That is the importance of self-determination. There are some nations that want their archives to be in these institutions as, as, an ex as opportunities for learning, to understand how things were created, to teach. That is what institutions like the Royal BC Museum are intended to do. And we're going to fix things. So to illustrate the depth of opposition to this idea, here's the Victoria Times columnist paper today, local paper in a very strong NDP area. Uh, 17 letters here uh, condemning the idea of replacing this with a billion dollar uh, museum. And again, this is NDP territory. The editors are actually asking people, if there's anyone who supports a project out there, please write us because we've received dozens of letters and not a single letter of support. This is the worst and most controversial problem to hit the NDP government since 2017. I don't think, I'm not sure how they can get out of this other than walking this back, the likes of which, uh, the opposition here, the likes of which we have not seen attached to any other issue that's hit the NDP government. Again, it came out of nowhere. Not mm -hmm. sure where it's going to go. Well, we'll see uh, in the days to come, I suppose. Thanks for that, yep. Keith. The village of Queen Charlotte is one step closer to potentially changing its community's name. Council voted unanimously Monday night to move forward in the process to return to the village's ancestral name, the village of Dodging Geats. A recent survey presented to council shows a majority of respondents support the name change. The issue was first raised three years ago in a letter sent to council by the Skidigat Haida Immersion Program requesting the traditional Haida name be restored. The next step in the process comes in June when a formal request will be drawn up to submit to the provincial cabinet. An alleged B.C. gangster captured in Puerto Rico earlier this year after more than a decade on the run is fighting Canada's extradition request. Accused murderer Connor DeMonte says the Canadian government hasn't provided any proof he committed crimes here. And the effort to bring him back should fail, barring the disclosure of more evidence. Rumina Dea reports. After 11 years on the run, an infamous B.C. man wanted for murder has been arrested in Isla Verde, Puerto Rico. Connor Vincent DeMonte fighting extradition to Canada. A charge of murder in Canada triggering an Extradition Act request in the United States is a serious matter. The, the accused is not wrong to want to see more evidence. 
the fugitive charged with first-degree murder in 2011 for the killing of rival gangster Red Scorpion Kevin LeClaire at a Langley shopping mall in 2009. DeMonte, the leader of the UN gang, said RCMP. DeMonte also wanted on one count of conspiracy to murder the Bacon brothers. DeMonte is an extremely dangerous individual and is not and should be considered armed and dangerous. DeMonte, a.k.a. Johnny Williams, had been living in Puerto Rico for years, volunteering for a honeybee charity before he was arrested with a firearm in February based on American court documents, which mentioned news reports stating DeMonte was living in a penthouse and owned a Lexus, three motorcycles and an old Jeep Cherokee. DeMonte's American public defender critical of Canada's lack of evidence for extradition. Andrew McCutcheon says the single document, a redacted affidavit filed by Terence Murphy, a member of CFSEU, BC's gang task force, does not contain physical or digital evidence of any kind tying DeMonte to a crime. McCutcheon says three former gang members turned crown witnesses have serious credibility issues. The total sum witness two is expected to have received is a jaw-dropping $400,000. Thus, witness two had 400,000 reasons to follow whatever cues were laid for him by the police. Canada put forward a bare minimum affidavit in the hope, I suspect, that there would be no contest of the extradition. DeMonte remains in custody in Puerto Rico. Still a mystery, how did the man with multiple aliases survive for so long undetected? Romina Dea, Global News. Well, the Prime Minister is weighing in on a planned international soccer friendly between Canada and Iran, saying he doesn't think it's a good idea. The match, to be held at BC Place on June 5th, is to serve as an international warm-up for both teams ahead of their appearances at the World Cup in Qatar this November. Trudeau was asked about the wisdom of hosting the Iranian team in light of the downing of Flight 752 in January of 2020. 55 Canadian citizens and 30 permanent residents were among the 176 people killed when an Iranian surface-to-air missile shot down the Ukraine International Airlines jet minutes after it took off from Tehran. This was a choice by Sport, uh, by Sport Canada, by, by Soccer, uh, Soccer Canada. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it wasn't a very good idea to invite the Iranian uh, soccer team here to Canada, uh, but that's something that, uh, that the organizers are going to have to explain. From the beginning, the question was for the organizers, not for the players or not for the participants that they want to watch a game. We just asked them why. Why? We, after 28 months, all our demands are not checked off. And uh, you just invite Islamic Republic of Iran for a friendly match? We don't understand that. In a written statement, Canada Soccer says, quote, we believe in the power of sport and its ability to bring people from different backgrounds and political beliefs together for a common purpose. Well, the police officer who shot Chantelle Moore during a wellness check has taken the stand at the inquest into her death. Moore, from the Tlaquiat First Nation on Vancouver Island, had recently moved to New Brunswick when she was killed. Constable Jeffrey Sun testified today Moore was asleep when he arrived at her home and that he doesn't know why the situation escalated so quickly. Kylie Stanton reports. The song, a show of support, as Chantal Moore's friends and family entered the second day of testimony at the coroner's inquest into her death. 
Today has been, you know, we've heard it. It's been a heavy day. Taking the stand, Constable Jeremy Sun, the police officer who fatally shot the 26-year-old Indigenous woman during a wellness check in Edmonston, New Brunswick, nearly two years ago. The officer told the coroner's jury he arrived on the balcony of Moore's apartment at 2.30 in the morning and could see she was asleep on the couch. But she woke up after he knocked on the window, shining a light on his face in an effort to identify himself as an officer. She doesn't know, you know what, what, what was going on, you know, you know, so we can only imagine how frightened she was. Son went on to say Moore appeared to grab something metallic and headed for the door of the apartment. When she exited, she was pointing a knife in the air. He says she advanced towards him despite his demands that she drop the weapon. She kept moving toward me, Sun testified. He said he kept backing up, reaching the railing where there was nowhere else to go. That's when he shot Moore four times in quick succession. It happened very quickly, he said, adding he couldn't understand why the events escalated the way they did, saying there was no reason it happened that way, in my opinion. Here is a man who teaches uh, de-escalation and he chooses the wrong way to go. There has to be ironclad policies in place for how officers uh, proceed, you know, in situations like that. Sun said the police force only had one working taser and on that night the weapon was with another officer. The shooting was investigated by Quebec's independent police watchdog and Sun was cleared of any wrongdoing. Now, the jury here will have the opportunity to make recommendations aimed at preventing similar deaths in the future. But Moore's family wants action. No more recommendations. We've had enough. When is there going to be change? We're done. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A carjacking victim is speaking out about his ordeal with ICBC. I feel like I got victimized more by ICBC than I had when I got my truck stolen at gunpoint. The terrifying experience and why he feels the insurance corporation has only made things worse. That's next on the news hour. Thieves break into a military museum in Chilliwack. What was stolen and why they believe it was targeted later. And Vancouver approves another drinking in parks pilot project where you will and won't be able to enjoy an alcoholic beverage later on the news hour. Right now, though, a Surrey man who was carjacked at gunpoint during a terrifying police incident in April says he feels like he's being victimized all over again, but this time by ICBC. As Aaron MacArthur reports, he says the insurance corporation refuses to cover hundreds of dollars worth of lost possessions. Stay right there. Um, put your hands up. So I was just like, okay, <laughs> whatever you say. He was only gone a few seconds. Trevor Clun left his truck running to run an errand. When he came back, he discovered he was the victim of a carjacking. At the time, it just didn't feel like he was going to shoot me. The suspect was eventually tracked down a few hours later. RCMP shot and killed him near the intersection of 142nd Street and 87th Avenue truck had very little damage and once the RCMP were done with his investigation Clun got it back minus he says about $600 worth of electronics now he's in a fight with ICBC to get compensated for his loss I feel like I got victimized more by ICBC than I had when I got my truck stolen at gunpoint 
Klund says ICBC adjusters have committed to replacing a few odds and ends, but ICBC was unable to provide a statement in time for broadcast about what is and what isn't covered after a theft. It's just been fresh, so frustrating to deal with and having them almost feel like they're blaming me for stuff that's missing. Possible brake damage. Klund is still waiting um, to get the brakes on his truck looked at. He's worried it will be another hassle sorting out what will be and what won't be covered. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Late this afternoon, ICBC did supply Global News with a statement saying it understands Klund's frustrations, but it says it doesn't cover personal items and vehicles, which is standard practice in auto insurance. It says the claim remains open and it is working with the customer. Coming up, wildlife warning. It, it was a pretty serious, it's not just one opportunistic situation. How a BC man could face big financial consequences for feeding the animals. Plus, an urgent appeal for blood donors. How no-shows and other factors are draining the supply. Crews are on scene to a rollover accident here in Pitt Meadows, westbound on Low Heat Highway, just west of Harris Road. A tow truck has just arrived and traffic is backed up on the approach. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside the Real Canadian Superstores and Walmarts throughout BC. Find your nearest location at sussexinsurance.com, open 9 to 9 every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Pitt Meadows. Once again, you'll be able to freely enjoy a beer, wine or cocktail when visiting a number of Vancouver parks and public spaces this summer. As Jasmine Bala reports, the Park Board has approved an expansion of the designated drinking zones pilot project. Some Vancouver parks like this will be the scene of booze consumption starting next month. The Park Board voted to expand its pilot project for allowing alcohol consumption in parks, which means under the new plan, you'll be allowed to drink in more areas of the park. The Park Board unanimously approved staff's recommended changes to the pilot project at their Monday night meeting. The biggest change for this summer in year two of the pilot is designated drinking areas in parks have been greatly expanded from small, seemingly arbitrary zones to encompassing most of the park. It leaves out areas that are deemed inappropriate for liquor to be consumed, including playgrounds, beaches, sports fields and other amenities. At John Hendry Park, for example, it would go from the designated areas highlighted in blue last year to this, a much larger and easier to remember area. But not everyone is on board with the idea of drinking in parks. One person who spoke at the meeting says it may do more harm than good. If this passes, it's going to get out of control just as Granville Street had got out of control. The same 22 parks will be part of the pilot, chosen based on public safety and minimal impact to other park users. This is really policy for folks that uh, respect the social contract and respect rules and want the opportunity to uh, abide by uh, the rules and still enjoy a beverage, uh, an alcoholic beverage at a park occasionally. The park board says the change still results in irregular site boundaries for drinking, but the hope is that it will be easier for park users to remember where they aren't allowed to drink instead of having different designated areas on a park-by-park -park basis. The pilot has an earlier start this year, June 3rd instead of mid-July, which means people can start drinking in parks sooner than they did last year. The pilot will run until mid-October. Jasmine Bala, Global News.
Well, tomorrow we are probably going to want to stay inside with wind and heavy rain expected. Senior meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with the timeline of that. Christy? Sophie, this is really going to be a substantial storm for this time of year. It's more like one we would see in fall or maybe winter, bringing, as you said, wind, rain, and also snow to the mountains. Now, I think the most impactful thing will be the winds. They are going to pick up overnight, strongest through the early morning hours with the outer coast of Vancouver Island up to 110 kilometer an hour gusts, inner coast up to 90. I'm expecting power outages and delays in the ferries. Now, it's not just through the morning hours that we're going to see the winds. They will continue to be strong spreading into the interior by the afternoon hours, also impacting those areas. Now, Metro Vancouver will see a range from 40 to 60 kilometer an hour gusts, and that will likely be the case in the interior. Now, when I come back, though, we'll show you which highways could see up to 10 centimeters of snow, and we'll also give you the timeline for the heaviest rain. Back to you. All right. Thanks, Christy. A B.C. man is facing charges after the Conservation Service claims he repeatedly fed bears on a popular North Shore trail. Grace Key has more on the costs of feeding dangerous wildlife and the two similar high-profile cases returning to court in the coming months. This is just one of the bears a West Vancouver man has allegedly been feeding along with coyotes. And according to conservation officers, he's been doing it for months. Just this last Friday, we were able to intercept uh, the suspect. And um, we managed to collect enough evidence to recommend charges uh, to Crown for feeding dangerous wildlife in West Vancouver for a period of time. The feeding happened at a popular West Vancouver trail system. Details are not being released since the matter is now before the courts. Officers say food has been removed and there is no risk to the public. (laughs) Feeding dangerous wildlife continues to be an ongoing problem. These images on social media showing a family hand-feeding bears in their backyard led to charges against a West Vancouver man. He's due back in court in August. Last year, a Whistler woman was fined $60,000 for repeatedly feeding black bears at her home. That matter is set for a sentence appeal on June 1st. She had a weekly grocery order that included 10 cases of apples and 50 pounds of carrots and pears. Neighbors reported seeing as many as five black bears on her property. She called one Lily. Eventually, a mother bear and two cubs had to be killed after becoming habituated to human food. We understand that people want to care for wildlife, but feeding wildlife compromised both public safety and the welfare of the animal. A tip to report all poachers and polluters hotline led to the most recent arrest. Feeding dangerous wildlife is illegal under the BC Wildlife Act and could result in fines up to $100,000. Grace Key, Global News. Up next, surrender in Mariupol. Russia stands to take control of the Ukrainian port city. Also ahead, a royal visit with reconciliation top of mind. Traffic is steady over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge in both directions right now. Just a little bit of leftover traffic eastbound on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Ukraine's military is working to evacuate all remaining troops from the besieged steel plant in Mariupol, ceding control of the city to Russia. It marks the end of the longest and bloodiest battle and a significant defeat for Ukraine. But as Global's Reggie Shikini reports, officials have formally paused any attempts to end the war, blaming Moscow's mindset. 
For weeks, hundreds of soldiers and civilians sought shelter in and defended the Azovstal steel plant. But on Monday, after more than 80 days, Ukraine no longer controls the site. Russia's defense ministry says 265 soldiers laid down their arms. Many are injured, and all are now in Russian-controlled territory. Ukraine says the decision was difficult, but this advisor to its president says the defender's resilience changed the course of this war. There is talk of a prisoner exchange, which Ukraine's deputy defense minister says is necessary. Still, the loss is significant. Mariupol's scorched earth is now part of a vast swath of the south under Russian control. But its aggressive tactics have become a final straw of sort for Scandinavia, where Russia shares a lengthy border. Sweden's intention is to join the defense alliance NATO, says its king. Finland's president saying we take our steps together. Both countries giving up decades-long neutrality to join the Western alliance. Though Turkey is opposed over domestic issues with both countries, something the bloc says it will be able to overcome. On Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden will welcome the Finnish and Swedish leaders to the White House. But Western will to end the war won't be enough. There haven't been formal talks between Kiev and Moscow in weeks, territorial disputes leaving the conflict at a stalemate, and the cost is soaring. Ukraine will need massive support and private investment for reconstruction and recovery. Both a daunting future task for a country whose present is still caught up in uncertainty. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Two years ago today, a snowbird's captain from Nova Scotia was killed in B.C. Captain Jen Casey died after she and the pilot ejected from their snowbird's jet. It happened in Kamloops during a cross-country tour to boost morale during the early months of the pandemic. A bird had been sucked into the plane's engine, causing it to stall. Jen Casey was originally from Halifax. She served as public affairs officer for the Snowbirds. Before that, Casey worked as a news reporter and talk radio host in Halifax. The city of Kamloops has announced plans to honor her with a permanent memorial. Police are investigating a weekend break-in at the Chilliwack Military Museum. At about 5 on Sunday morning, thieves used a cordless grinder to cut the locks and get inside. They stole an airsoft replica Tommy gun and an invaluable collection of about two dozen bayonets dating back to the First World War. Museum staff say the theft of the bayonet collection appears targeted as the thieves ignored a number of other valuable items. The weaponry is stuff from uh, First World War, Second World War, Korean, current. So some of the stuff to replace is going to be quite hard or near impossible. We're a community-based society. We help veterans. We help veterans' families, veteran families' kids. Uh, We do a lot of community stuff. All of the stolen bayonets are documented with serial and archival numbers. Collectors are being asked to keep their eyes open for the items. As Queen Elizabeth marks 70 years on the throne, the Prince of Wales and his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall, have kicked off their Canadian tour in Newfoundland. One of the issues Prince Charles and Camilla's three-day tour is set to focus on is Indigenous reconciliation. Global's Kyle Benning has more. 
A serious tone setting up the three-day Canadian tour for the Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall. Prince Charles and his wife Camilla have dedicated this trip to climate change and reconciliation. He says this comes at an important moment in Canada's history. With Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples across Canada committing to reflect honestly and openly on the past and to forge a new relationship for the future. The first stop in Newfoundland saw performances and greetings from government officials, including the Governor-General welcoming the couple in Inuktitut. Mary Simon asked the Prince and Duchess to hear stories from Indigenous people as they visit Newfoundland, Northwest Territories and Ottawa. And to encourage you to learn the truth of our history, the good and the bad. In this way, we will promote healing, understanding and respect. This is the first royal visit since the COVID-19 pandemic. The former Assembly of First Nations National Chief says Indigenous people across the country have special bonds with the monarchy coming from treaties. Perry Bellegarde says having a leader like Prince Charles participating in dialogue goes a long way. And so anytime that a national leader or international leader comes here, it's really the message, but it's what happens after. That's the work we have to continue. This is the first royal tour since several communities across the country uncovered mass grave sites at former residential schools last year. One expert on Crown government relations says the short trip won't necessarily allow the Prince and Duchess to get a full sense of the issues from Indigenous communities. If more time was spent, then more meaningful dialogue and, uh, and exchange could happen. Uh, petitions, um, uh, issues that need to be brought up to the Canadian government would have been raised. Kyle Benning, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, Canadian Blood Services is in urgent need of donors to book appointments and keep them. The blood system is feeling the strain right now because fewer people are booking appointments to donate and many of those who do are cancelling their appointments because of illness or travel. The national blood inventory is down by 25% since the start of April. Canadian Blood Services says the low reserve of blood can be replenished before patients are affected, but only if people from across the country donate blood over the next few weeks. Well, today marks the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia to raise awareness and support the LGBTQ plus community with the goal of creating safer workspaces for the community. This year, part of the focus is on raising awareness and support for safer spaces in the workplace. The organization Pride at Work Canada says more than 50% of LGBTQ plus employees say they, need, they feel the need to hide their identity at work. We may have gotten to a place where we have certain legal protections in Canada um, in regards to sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, which is very exciting. But it's also a time where uh, we're seeing global backlash against the community. In Canada, although we have some of these legal protections in terms of employment, uh, we're still seeing a hierarchy. Pride societies are encouraging everyone to take to social media to express their support for the LGBTQ2 community. Still to come, happy birthday to a Canadian hero. Do I have to do anything? <laughs> Just enjoy yourself. <laughs> How they pulled out all the stops to mark a milestone for a veteran of the Second World War. Plus, what was going on at the wastewater treatment plant today? The delicate operation just ahead. 
All right, Christy Gordon is back with a look at our weather forecast. If we can get through the wild weather to come, Christy, it looks like we'll be okay for a few days anyway. That's right. We've got about 24 to 36 hours of uh, stormy conditions on the way, and then it doesn't look so bad. Now, the heaviest rain will likely happen overnight. Through the day tomorrow, we're going to see more spotty rainfall. It's more so through the day in, during the day tomorrow that we're going to see those strong winds. So here's a look at the areas under a wind warning right now. Again, the concern is for these areas highlighted in red, but we're really expecting strong winds all across the region, in particular along the Strait of Georgia tomorrow morning and then spreading a little bit further inland as we head into the afternoon hours. And these are the areas with snowfall. So there, we're talking about below seasonal values by six degrees. So 11 as a daytime high for Metro Vancouver, as an example. And that means snow for the mountain passes, five to 10 for Coquihalla, as well as Hope Princeton, and five for the Rogers Pass area. Now, snow in the mountains uh, as we head into the summer months would be great if we continue with this cool, unsettled weather, uh, because of course it will add to the reservoirs. But what we don't want is a drastic turn to hot conditions and then all of a sudden that's added moisture in the mountains that could cause uh, more problems when it comes to the flood scenario. Overnight there's a system driving in. Again heaviest rain expected overnight for the south coast during the day becomes much more spotty but that's when the rain will spread further inland and we'll continue to see that snow on the mountain passes right into our Thursday morning. Well below seasonal values and also embedded in this uh, rainfall for the interior a risk of thunderstorms during the day. Now, you'll see that there is a sun in that icon, a little bit of it. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a break in the clouds in, in through the afternoon hours tomorrow. But really, uh, the more significant weather certainly going to be the wind and the rain. And then, as Sophie mentioned, look at Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Lots to look forward to after that. Tonight's winter, Central Windows weather window coming to you from Roberts Creek on the Sunshine Coast. Thanks to Carly, Carly Lambing for that. Great shot as the sun was setting. Looks beautiful. Thank you, Christy. Well, it wasn't a UFO, but travelers passing over the Alex Fraser Bridge had a bit of an unusual sight greeting them today. Two 500-ton cranes performing a delicate operation to lift and then reinstall a massive dome at the Anasis Island Wastewater Treatment Plant. The dome is one of four at the facility that houses what are called trickling filters. Those filters help in the wastewater treatment process. One more dome lift is scheduled for next year. Then it'll be another 20 years before the operation will have to be repeated. I did a story inside that plant. You did? I think about, well, not quite 10 years ago, but it was a ways back. How did it smell? <laughs> not as Sorry. bad as you might think that's actually. what i'm thinking this is my first thought but there were stories in there that made me not eat dinner for a couple of days let's put it this way there are brave people who work inside oh that. yes very brave yes thank you for doing that with for strong us. stomachs <laughs> um okay so the vancouver whitecaps will play a home game tomorrow against dallas lately with the whitecaps lucas cavallini has played well probably playing the best he has played since becoming a whitecap uh, again, when you help the team, the team helps you. Now that's a good way to put it. Ryan Gold is out, so that puts even more pressure on Cavallini to lead the way for the Caps. And later, celebrating a second World War veteran on a very special day. How Jack Birch made an impact as a pilot and as a publisher.
We're just discussing things that Squire saw at the wastewater treatment plant. And we should just leave it at that because people are eating dinner. Well, this is not gross. This is a good safety tip, or a tip okay. anyway. People were throwing, they, they showed what people threw down their toilets. A lot of people, not a lot of people, but some people threw potato chip bags down the toilet. Why would you do that? They don't break up. not where it goes. No, you don't put them down there. Uh, Lucas Cavallini is one of the Vancouver Whitecaps designated players, which means he gets paid a lot more than the others and is expected because of that to be one of the stars. But he hasn't shone brightly enough for a lot of people's tastes. He was brought in from the Mexican League to be almost the equivalent of a power forward in hockey, someone who can muscle his way in to scoring goals. We haven't seen a lot of that, but recently it's starting to go the way we all thought it would when he first came here. And the Caps hope to see more of it tomorrow night at home against Dallas. Back to him. There's a shot. And the Caps are on the board. This is the kind of performance Whitecap supporters have been expecting from Lucas Cavallini. We just haven't seen enough of this, though, in the previous two seasons. Well, Lucas has been very unlucky last year. Last year, he was uh, was always injured, to be honest. And uh, and he, since he's a fighter, he wanted to be on the field. He wanted to help. And uh, it was a training, but uh, he wasn't himself. So he was always behind everyone. That's the reason why he was always on the bench. That's the reason why he couldn't exude that power, that uh, fighting spirit, that quality that he has in protecting the ball and in being a dominant presence in the in the box. Cavallini's been in the cap starting 11 for six of their nine matches. He's found the back of the net twice and is trending towards becoming a dominant force up front for Vancouver. Not even a quarter of the way through the season, he's generated 28 scoring attempts. That's just six fewer than he created all of last season. Now... He's in a much better physical condition. He is working a lot for the team. He's working a lot, I would say, also for himself. He has also this bigger uh, objective to go to the World Cup with the, with the national team. So uh, he's doing everything correctly. And uh, again, when you help the team, the team helps you. And the Caps need all hands on deck. Ryan Gold will not play Wednesday against Dallas and is questionable when they play in Charlotte on the weekend. Vancouver is now unbeaten in three and face a strong Dallas FC side, which hits a point out of first place in the West. The love confidence, uh, the last three games were really good at, at home. We, we are in kind of a good role, I would say, and uh, we want to keep this momentum going. The BC Lions players are training on their own up in Kamloops while they await an agreement between their union and the owners. There are no talks going on right now. And if the owners are trying to wait out the players and force them to sign their last offer just so they don't miss any paychecks, they may have a problem because COVID taught CFL players how to be patient and how to live without football. If we want to play a waiting game, uh, you know, we played a waiting game for the league all of 2020. Uh, 2021, we waited for quite a while to see if we were going to have a season, and we waited for a shortened season. So, so waiting is something that these gentlemen and, and myself included are something that we're very much accustomed to over the last three years. So I think, uh, you know, as unfortunate as it is, and, and we're all eager to get going, we're, we're out here, we're throwing the ball around, ready to get after it. But, you know, is it ideal? No. Are these guys getting paid? No. Uh, but I think it's critical to, to protect and, and grow the future of the league. We have the battle, battle of Alberta tomorrow. Battle of Florida started tonight. Panthers and Lightning and Anthony Duclair and the Florida Panthers strike first. one nothing for the team from Miami. Look at this goal. Nikita Kucherov, yep, yep. Is he going to shoot? No, he passes it, so 
Corey Perry scores an easy one to make it 1-1. In the third period, Pierre Edouard Belmar makes it 2-1, and Tampa has won game one on the road. 4-1 over the Panthers. Liverpool needs this one against Southampton, trying to stay in the fight for the championship. Man City in the lead, and in the lead in this game. Southampton, 1-0. Nathan Redmond, but Minamino. We got a tie. And the winning goal for Liverpool. Joel Maddow, just away from the stretched out fingers. So, 2-1 for Liverpool. They are still in the hunt. And Kylian Mbappe, it looks like he will no longer be with PSG. He apparently is about to sign a deal with Real Madrid. He was the player of the year in France three years in a row. Big offer from PSG to stay, but he says he's always wanted to play for Real Madrid. And any group that Tiger Woods plays in will be the star attraction at any golf tournament. But this week at the PGA Championship, Tiger Woods' group will be like a constellation. He has other stars alongside him, Rory McIlroy and uh, Justin Spieth. Uh, another power trio will be Scheffler, Rahm and Maurakawa. Dustin Johnson will play with Justin Thomas and Patrick Cantlay. Woods' group incidentally tees off Thursday at 6.11 a.m. our time. Jordan Spieth. Why did I say Justin? Jordan Spieth. There you go. You were thinking of, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking thinking of. of Too many J names in my head. Okay, thanks, Squire. Up next, a birthday celebration fit for a centenarian. And Drew is standing by with a preview of what's to come on Global News at 11 tonight. And thanks, Sophie. Police in Westminster are recommending a charge of assault after another random stranger attack. The assault happened last week mid-afternoon when a man was walking on the overpass towards Sapperton Skytrain Station. We'll have more on the suspect later tonight. Plus... Renters are gathering at Vancouver City Hall this hour, voicing their concerns over Vancouver City's proposed Broadway corridor plan. Vancouver's mayor has said amendments will protect renters displaced by the plan, which covers nearly 500 square city blocks and would allow towers up to 40 stories along the new subway. But renters fear mass redevelopment will only lead to huge rent hikes. We'll have the very latest on this developing story when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Anne. Well, he's an incredible man with an unbelievable story to tell. Jack Birch is a Second World War veteran who carried out numerous bombing missions and lived to tell about it. Jay Durant has more on this Canadian hero and how the community he has spent decades in rallied around him for a milestone birthday. That's for you to wear today. They want him back, though. (laughs) It's been a while since Jack Birch put on a bomber jacket and pilot's cap, but he had to look the part on his big day. Do I have to do anything? Just enjoy yourself. (laughs) A kite band led the parade honoring the Second World War veteran on his 100th birthday. I feel very proud to be accepting this honor on behalf of my comrades, especially the ones that are not here now. And, of course, a flyover for the former bomber pilot who flew 34 missions over Nazi-occupied Europe without even getting a scratch. The life expectancy of a bomber pilot during World War II at the time was something like five or six missions. Birch got his crew back safe every time, but there are memories of too many close calls caught in German spotlights and under heavy fire. They were at me for about five minutes. 
and then the lights went out. It was my lucky day. He got into the newspaper business when he returned to B.C. For over four decades, he was the owner and publisher of the Highland Echo, which had its office in the heart of Vancouver's Little Italy. He knew everybody, and he walked down Commercial Drive, and it was we had to have a coffee, and sometimes you had to go into the back and have a little bit of grappa with somebody. Jack Birch's bravery during the Second World War earned him the Distinguished Flying Cross. Three years ago, he took his last flight, a trip in a glider and the tow plane on the same day. He didn't look out the window very much, uh, if at all. Uh, he just stared at the instruments. It was like he was sitting at a desk uh, in an office from a long time ago that he kind of missed the view of. Jack Birch, distinguished flying cross. He's not one for big celebrations, but this one was special. Surrounded by family and friends and so many others who just wanted to be there to honor a Canadian hero. If I thought we were charging a mission, I, I'd, I'd have doubled it. <laughs> Jay Durant, Global News. Happy birthday, Jack. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, make sure you email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Still talking about the wastewater treatment plant. I saw a few things in there. <laughs> okay, don't, you don't have to share. It's okay. We'll let Christy end the show with a look at a pretty dismal couple mm -hmm. of days. Well, night and day. Basically, we have to just get through Wednesday, and then it looks like we're in the clear for Thursday, although there is still a chance of some snow even on the mountain passes into Thursday morning, but then a clearing. Wet and windy tomorrow. It's going to be cold. Make sure you bundle the kids up when they're heading to school. Uh, I think the heaviest rain will be overnight, but the strongest winds during the day tomorrow. All right. Take care. Thanks for watching. Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.